Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks. Well, welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Jones. I'm super excited to, to get to this episode today because you know we're all looking forward to, to spring when we can go out there and, and stick some corn, some soybeans in the ground. Um, I know I always am. With us today, our guest, Dara Boardman, product manager for MFA Seed Division. And Dara, I'm just going to let you kind of introduce yourself, give us some background on you. Okay. Uh, my name is Dr. Dara Boardman. I have multiple degrees in plant science and soil science. My undergrad is actually in plant breeding, genetics, and biotechnology. Uh, Master's in crop physiology, PhD in soil science, so I kind of run the gamut there. Most of my background has been working with corn. All of my degrees have um, focused specifically on corn, and then after school, I have done most of my work with corn still. Um, During my undergrad, I worked in a genetics lab, a corn genetics lab, so um, learned a lot about that side of the corn industry, Um, have have done summer internships for different corn companies and that sort of thing. Sure. So yeah, you you mentioned you kind of did slide the whole gamut through through degrees. It sounds like through college. What 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 kind of steered you that way? I mean, it sounds like you you got involved maybe in corn production in, in undergrad, but uh, so I did not grow up on a farm. I am from south of the Missouri River, where there's actually not a lot of corn grown. But my high school had a really good ag program, and I really enjoyed working with the ag industry through that. Um, I was pretty much a nerd, so I knew (laughs) I was going the science route. I really liked working with plants. Sure, yeah. Genetics Um, and soils is a natural fit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Um, So I knew going into undergrad I wanted to do something with plants. Um, Started my undergrad program in breeding and genetics. Quickly started working in the genetics lab, really liked that side of stuff, but didn't want to only be working in a lab. Um, A lot of what that group did is is more of the lab-based side of breeding and genetics rather than the field-based side. So when I went on to work on my master's, I decided I wanted to do something a little more field-based, a little more people-based. So I did crop phys and then... um, was asked to do a PhD program in a, a soils program. Uh, that was not necessarily my intention early on, but yeah. it's where the path led and I enjoyed it. And now I feel like I can say I'm a soils nerd. Cool, yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. Cause I mean, honestly, there's a lot of good career opportunities out there. Um, I feel like in the ag industry, we don't get enough outside talent in the pool. Mm-hmm. And, and um, a lot of us in ag want to run out and, and jump into ag just enough to get enough baseline so we can run off and go back to the farm because <laughs> that's it, it's literally I mean this I mean that, that may be a stereotype I guess but it, it's it tends to be somewhat true you know a lot of, a lot of us want to get back at some point yeah and um, and so that it just provi- I think it provides a lot of good opportunity for so I think that's a that's a cool backstory I think it provides a lot of opportunity to folks off the farm as far as you know career development in the in the ag space absolutely. So, that's cool. 
So uh, go into go into your your job here uh, a little bit for us as far as managing some of the more corn stuff. Um, kind of you know give us a breakdown of kind of what your year looks like in, in okay. planning. So uh, my year starts probably I would say in the fall. Um, we start getting data from our plots that were planted over the summer. Um, looking at notes I've taken, looking at yields we get once it's harvested. Um, I then take that information, start deciding, are we going to move forward with any new products? If there's new products, I have to go through the background or backside of working with the company we got those genetics from, um, getting that to that information to our production company. So we use one production company for our more corn. Um, I get that information to them so they can get the parent seed and, and everything that goes into it. Um, you have to have the right seed for what you asked for, but then also the refuge if you have a refuge in a bag product. Um, they have to compile all that information so that they know, know how big fields to plant with us, but also with any other companies producing with them. So as the fall goes on, I take that information and, and start looking at, well, what, what current lineup do we have and do I think we should get rid of any products? And corn is a lot different than soybeans. Soybeans, you can you could completely change your lineup from one year to the next. Corn isn't that way because we have carryover. Um, anything that's not sold at the end of the year gets shipped back to the um, production company. They store it over the winter for us, rebag it, retag it, make sure everything looks good. Um, we do germination tests to make sure it's fine for planting the next year. Uh, so even once I decide to stop producing a product, it's another anywhere from two to four or five years before we're out of that inventory. It just okay. depends on how yeah. how fast our salespeople are at getting, getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, so then... Around that same time I'm making decisions for new products, the genetic companies that we work with bring me new experimental products to look at. So I can I work with three genetics companies. One company is probably going to bring me anywhere from 20 to 30 products to look at. The other two are a little bit smaller and typically bring 5 to 10 each. So I'm looking at anywhere the range of 30 to 50 experimental products. I then decide, you know, do these look like they're going to fit in our market somewhere? And our market is fairly diverse because you have the southwest Missouri, Kansas, southeast Kansas portion that is a much different environment than the Iowa border or definitely different than the boot heel. So I have to take all those things into consideration. Um, it's best for us if we have products that can work in all three of those types of locations. Um, just makes it easier to sell the products and, and get them moved in a timely manner. Otherwise, um, we can bring out products that are just for that Southwest Missouri, Southeast Kansas, um, just for the boot heel. Our focus is going to be mostly our, our main Missouri territory and what fits there and then does it fit in those other spaces. So they'll they'll bring me the genetic suppliers will bring me information on each product i have access to some more information through their websites i'm looking you know is this a tough acre product well i need a tough acre product that's going to be 110 to 112 days so this one fits okay i'm going to test that one um, this one looks like maybe it has some disease issues it, it's not quite as resistant to as many diseases 
do I think enough people are going to use a fungicide that it's worth it to, to bring out a product that has a weakness like that? Maybe not. So I'm, I might test it. I might not test it. In the end, I'm testing probably 20 to 30 experimental products. And then I also put in our products that we currently sell. Now, our corn portfolio is anywhere from 20 to 30 products. Again, because as you phase things in and out, you it takes a while to get rid of some of them. They start off slow in the beginning. Um, so you always have some extra products on either end of that process that account for those 30. Typically, we have a 8, 10, 12 products that are our primary sales products. Um, so those are what I'm going to enter in with the experimentals. That way I have something to compare to. If we're looking at one at our biggest product and an experimental looks like it's going to beat it by 10 bushels, um, I need to know that through data. Um, we don't use strip trials. We don't use um, farmer data. Everything is replicated four times um, so that we can statistically look at is this product worth bringing out or not. Um, in a given year we may bring out typically one to three products. Anything more than that it's hard to get people to pick up on, on more than three new products at a time. Uh, so generally we limit it to that and we don't want our portfolio to get too big. Right. Um, so then going into the spring, I take both of those sets of information, the experimentals that I'm looking at, the products that we're going to produce, and I have to get all the seed for that. So for the experimentals, I have to order that from the companies. Um, for the new production stuff, I have to send that information to our production company, and they work on the backside of getting the seed for planting in the field. Um, going into winter and spring, also overlapping with all these things, I am in charge of shipping out all of my corn. Um, so when our salespeople, our stores put their orders in the system, about the November, December timeframe, I start looking at what of our stuff is, is ready to be shipped. So has it been bagged or rebagged? And I take that and it, it's always going to come to me in phases. So the first people who get shipments, are never going to be all of their order because not everything's bagged and ready. So I have to look at what, what locations can I take or can I provide most of their stuff so I can go to that location the fewest amount of times. So we try to do most of our shipments um, direct ship. So we try to get you know one or two locations on a truck at a time as much of their stuff as we can, and then smaller stores or smaller orders will send through the Sedalia warehouse. So I have to make that puzzle all fit together, <laughs> um, figure out what's gonna go on a load, what, making sure our load stays within weight limits, and then put it in the system, send it up to our production company, and then Lisa, who works in the seed division, schedules a truck and gets that out. Um, but when you're doing that, while people are still putting orders in, sometimes it gets like you've just divvied up your puzzle to even more pieces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I do that from about November, December to all the way up through planting. Okay. Um, this is also when hopefully our plots are getting planted. I'm going out to start taking notes, um, hopefully in the April, May time frame trying to get you know emergence notes, early vigor notes, and then taking notes all summer. 
once planting stops, stores start collecting any returns, and then I start scheduling all the returns to go back. Um, that's obviously, hopefully, less than is going out to the field when <laughs> yeah. we ship it. Yeah, hopefully, um, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have a, a 2019 yeah, where a lot of stuff gets I was going to say, except for back. 2019. That's what I was thinking, um, too. So that's an even different puzzle because you have smaller quantities that you're trying to fit together yeah. and get sent back up there. Um, that is most everything, and then the process starts all over again. Does, um, does a PhD in soil science get you very many courses in like trucking logistics? Not a single one. So <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking while you were describing that. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, so luckily we have Lisa who's been doing this job for a long time and Normally I'm like, Lisa, I have these six stores. Which yeah. one should I should put together? <laughs> and she's like, this one, this one, this one. And, and, and you want the stops to be in this order. And yeah. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yes. I try on my own and I'm like, oh, Lisa's going to correct me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's parts of, parts of real does. life that, that sometimes, yeah, looking, looking back on what we were, what we were coming through college for or whatever. Well, you're like, you're looking mix. at a map, you know, and you're like, oh, those are pretty close if it's part of the state where I'm not used to. And you're like, you look at the, the road map yeah. and you're like, well, there's, they might be close, but there's, there's no roads there. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, turns Start out they got they got to go 100 miles back down the road to cross the bridge or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that 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 actually happens. So uh, rolling back to you mentioned uh, genetic suppliers as far as showing you new products or showing you things that that they think you might be interested in for that something that might work here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of background do they have on some of that stuff when they come to you? Like. Do they have yield data or where does that come from? Yeah. Like where is their yield data from? Kind of like what what kind of what does that package look like that they can okay. show to you? So of the three companies that we use, two of them have their own breeding programs. One has I guess more of what I would call a secondary program where they are getting products from some of the primary breeding programs. They then take them and do more of a regional look because a lot of these breeding programs are looking at products in the widest swath of land they can um, and and passing that information out. So this third company will get some from the two companies that we work with and then there's also some other companies. Uh, So the two companies that I'm going to call primary breeding programs, they do all of their own stuff. So everything from looking at original parent lines, um, testing them, getting purity in those parent lines, getting them crossed out in the field, meaning male and female to see what it's going to produce, and then planting that to see how it's going to produce for a farmer. Um, So there's multiple stages in that genetics where, you know, they're having to get parents seed, they're having to cross the, the pollen to the silks in when you plant the parent seed and then whatever is created out of that planting it like a farmer would plant it Um, all of those are different stages that probably a lot of people don't realize everything that goes into that background because the farmer cares about what am i getting in the bag and how is it going to produce Um, but sometimes you can have a parent line that's that's difficult to produce Um, one that i'm just talked to one of my genetic suppliers about gets fusarium crown rot fairly easily. And so it's really hard to, to get it to produce. Now when it's used, it does really well. 
typically because of hy- hybrid vigor, you know, you get the best of both parents, but right. even getting the seed for that parent line is difficult. Okay, yeah. Um, so these genetic companies are doing all of that background stuff. Some of it's happening in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, mostly the U.S. Um, they do a lot of it in winter production in South America as well to try to shorten that time frame because it can take... Typically, a, a cycle like that is seven to ten years from isolating two parent lines and then crossing them. So if you can do North and South America, you cut it in half. Okay. Um, so then they take, like, once all of that background is done and they decide this cross of male and female is going to work well, typically because of yield, but also because of disease packages, how well they do with insects, um, how sturdy the stalks are, will their roots withstand um, a sand soil that that doesn't support a plant as well as a clay or loam soil, you know. So all of those things are factoring in when they're looking at what parent lines go together. They then will take the yield or they'll they'll get it to farmer level what a farmer is going to plant and they will plant those all over the u.s typically in packages that range based on maturity typically so they'll have a block that's you know the 105 to 110 day section 111 to 115 day section and then they'll look at those all over the u.s um where where they make sense to plant they're not planting 95 day corn in florida okay right um, when you when you mentioned the day thing mm-hmm. for somebody that doesn't exactly understand um can you run me through what, what exactly when you say it's 105 day corn what's that mean so uh, the the day is typically or not typically is called the relative maturity and that's about how long from planting to maturity um, we don't typically harvest right at maturity, so when you hear 105 day, um, don't think I'm going to plant it and I'm going to go combine it or hand pick it or whatever you want to do in 105 days. We typically leave it in the field longer to get down to the right moisture. So maturity is going to be from planting to when it's physiologically ready. That doesn't mean that it's grain... Um, when it's black layered. When it's black layered. Okay. But doesn't, that, it doesn't mean that 15 does, and a half percent moisture. Correct. I, I was yeah. going to say that's not yeah. what a grain elevator wants, but right. that's when okay. um, physiologically it is done. The black layer means that seed can fall off and it can survive on its own. It's no longer getting anything from the plant, so it's ready. But a farmer's never going to want to harvest it when black layer happens. You want to let it dry down more. Sure. Unless they have their own dryer. When, yeah, <laughs> and are willing to spend the money and propane's for propane's really cheap. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so 105 days from that planting to that black layer. Okay. Um, and that's going to vary what you want to plant north to south. So the very north region of our territory is probably going to plant 105 to about 113, 14 day. Uh, the boot heel is planting 112, 113 honestly as high as I can get it for them, 118, 19 day. Um, So there's a lot of overlap there you can see, but if you go up to the Canadian border, they're planting 85 day corn. Okay. Um, So I'm gonna ask you what's mm -hmm. probably a ridiculous question. Nope. Um, Is is it the disease package that goes with that? So like, why can't I plant that 85 day corn and just raise my crop that much faster? Um, Um, So the earlier the maturity, typically the lower yield you're going to get because 
corn or plants in general are taking sunlight and creating something, creating sugars, foods, whatever. In this case, it's going to be the seed. Um, the longer you have for a plant to grow, the more sunlight that plant can take in and more sugar or food or corn it can create. So when you have an 85 day, that means only 85 days is it absorbing sunlight and, and generating that seed. If you got a 120 day crop, you have 35 more days. Right. <laughs> I yeah. had to make sure my math, that was math right is right. Yep. Um, <laughs> you have 35 more days where it's collecting sunlight and turning it into seed. So typically your yields are a little bit better. Um, now there are places that like Southwest Missouri, Southeast Kansas, where they are known for having more droughty situations mm -hmm. and it typically happens later in the season. So they are going to get earlier corn knowing that, or, or shorter day corn, knowing that if they plant it, they, it can be almost done before that drought really hits hard. Um, if you planted a regular maturity or what you would think would be a regular maturity for that area, it might hit, the drought might hit at a really crucial time and decimate your yields. Sure. Um, well, sometimes rotation down there too, they're looking to put wheat mm -hmm. behind their corn. So they, so they want to get it in and out. In and out and yep. dried down. So, okay. So it's, yeah. So there's a little bit of a balancing game there. It sounds like in, in. Yeah. Place in a, a hybrid or how long, you know, what their what their relative maturity is in, in the right yep. spot. Cool. Interesting. So then once you take one of those and, and you decide, okay, this is this is one that we want to run with, um, from there to the point where the, the grower gets it in a bag uh, from one of our locations, like where did, you said send to production, I think, at one point or another. Like where where does that corn actually come from? So, so you, our corn one. is all produced in Iowa at the moment. Okay. Um, we use one production company, and they have pr production facilities throughout the Midwest, throughout the Corn Belt. Okay. Um, ours is in southeast Iowa, and as much as possible, our corn is produced around that facility. Um, depending on what other companies are asking for products to be produced, if there's something else, if there's another company that's producing the same thing we are, it Ours combined might be grown at a different facility and then trucked to wherever. Okay. Um, so then they do all the dry. So you harvest field corn pretty early when it's, I think, like 30, 35% moisture on the grain. So it stays on the ear. And then you harvest the whole ear. You keep it. Um, they basically put it up a system and it goes up and into drying bins okay it dries in in there all together again so um, unlike a, a farmer you want to shell it so you don't have to take up space for the cob they are more worried about keeping the seed pure if it falls sure. off they don't know which ear it came from right. so they're only going to do one um, hybrid at a time to make sure it's all the same and anything that falls off they can't they sure. can't keep um, so then they dry it in there and then when it comes out of there is when the seed comes off the cob it gets any chemicals we add to it um, mixed in there it gets sorted and sized to where you know we have four sizes of corn um, af af2 ar ar2 so the f's are flats the r's are rounds and then okay. if it doesn't have a number it's the smaller seed if it's a two it's a larger seed okay um, so they do all that sorting um, get them into four separate piles, and then I guess that's when the chemicals are added, and then it's 
put into our bags. Okay, cool. Right, because all of our bagging is done upstream, like you said. Correct. Productions. And, so and all, all of our treatment is done right, as well. Right, all the treatment's been done as well. Yeah. This unlike is the difference soybeans, than soybeans. Unlike our soybeans where, you know, we're over-treating and yeah. everything's done there at the production site. So all of our lines are have the same seed treatment, you know, um, yes. from that perspective. And we we stick with one seed treatment. Um, typically, we have 500-rate Acceleron. Uh, if a farmer wants a, a higher treatment... Um, we stay within the Acceleron family, so we're not, we don't offer other seed treatments, but if they want a higher seed treatment, we can get that okay. for them. Okay. That's typically requested in the fall, winter, so I can make sure it gets done. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, and so now let's go in just a little bit to the to some of the plot data stuff, mm-hmm. and, and I, I can fire some... For those of not the listening to this, we probably should make clear that our co-host Cameron here is actually in charge of doing all the plot data. So, so if you ever hear me fire some shots at our, our plot stuff, it, it's it's all in jest, right? That's, fine. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so, I've heard both ways on on some of the stuff about about plot data. How useful is some of that yield data? I guess in this case, my question, especially yield data, how useful is that to you in in placing placing something or, or longevity of how long you want to keep that around or whatever. Well, I would say building on that also just to add to that question is talk about the importance of our own testing compared to just getting the breeder data, like yep. you said, you know, utilizing breeder data. Yeah. Yep. Make sure Cameron keeps his job. Okay. So. Okay. So <laughs> a few myself. different things here. Let's start with the breeder data question first. Um, so breeder data is going to get me uh, yield data that, might be for a region of the U.S., so it might be most of Missouri. For for the biggest company that we use, Missouri is almost all its own territory other than the boot heel. Um, but I don't know where within those within that territory those plots are located. I don't even know how many plots they have. They'll tell me how many replications there are, but one site could have six or seven pl- replications. One could have four. I have no way of knowing that. Right. Um, I have no way of knowing where they're spread out at. So the breeder data take gets me far enough to know, is this product worth looking at? And there are companies like MFA that only use breeder data and they will produce based on, well, this one looks like it's, it's gonna fit, we need 107 day that's tough acre and fits in this yield range. Um, and, and they'll produce based on that. To me, one of the benefits of being our in-house brand uh, more local than you know our big partner brands our decalb nk those products mm-hmm. is we are looking at stuff only for our trade territory not to fit missouri kansas iowa illinois you know we don't have to make it fit in that space we need right. it to fit where we sell products so it's i take that breeder data that it's going to lead me, hopefully, to, to good products. But there are so many options out there. I told you that one company is bringing me 30 products, and that's one of three companies. Um, so I have to narrow it down because I told you I only produce one to three new products in a given year. So we have roughly 14 sites through our agronomy division um, spread throughout our territory, and that goes... We, we try to have one in Kansas, and the rest are pretty well in Missouri. Um, 
Yeah, we've, Even, had, we've had some in Illinois. We've had a couple yeah, of Yeah, one right guys. across into in the northeast. Um, if we needed to, we could probably go into Arkansas down by the boot heel. Um, but typically I look at, for, for find, figuring out what locations I want, is where do we sell a good portion of stuff or where is there something unique? I can't replicate the Kansas data anywhere else in our trade territory, so I need something to go there. Even if we don't sell as much as other areas, I can't promise to have them a a product that's going to fit them if I've not tested anything there. So we try to spread out our plots throughout our different regions that we have. Um, We try to make our plots twofold for me to get data, but also for our sales guys to have somewhere to look at new products that are coming up, look at our current lineup, um, so they can see it somewhere that's less biased than in a farmer's field. Ours is replicated data, so we have data to back it up. It's not, oh, that end of the field was the good end, you know. Um, So I rely moving forward any products solely on our internal testing. Um, I'm typically we're going to have one or two plots that fails, um, whether that's too much water, drought, um, planter issues, whatever. Uh, so I might throw those out, but I still try to look at that data because if it failed because of a drought, I want to know, well, which products did the best in that drought area? Yeah, for sure. That's pretty um, realistic. If, you know, if there was a, if there was a water hole, which we've had, did anything survive there? Did anything do well? Were there, if we had to replant it in that first round, was there anything that stood out on emergence? Because then I can look at that and say, um, well, if it came up with too much water in the spring when it was cold, it's, I'm definitely going to re- recommend it for an early planting product, but also it can fit in a conservation tillage practice situation where typically the soils are a little bit colder, a little bit more moist, hopefully. Um, and I can say with some authority that, you know, you don't have to guess on if it's going to come up in this colder, wetter soils. Mm-hmm. This one's going to do well. Yeah. Um, even if those plots don't make it to yield, I can get some good data there. So then I take notes all summer as much as I can travel to 14 sites. Um, And then we get the yield data. So we replicate everything four times, actually five times, because we have the front block that's for our salespeople or or any sort of field days to walk through. And we can't guarantee that somebody didn't break a plant over or, or hurt things. All those crazy salespeople. I know, right? They're like, this one looks too good. Let me steal it here. (laughs) Well, I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, So then the the back four are what we use for data. Okay. Um, So it's replicated four times. We run statistics on it, look look at it. And then if something is weird, we'll throw something out. Cameron throws something out. Yep. If there's a spot that has a lot of disease or, you know a wind tunnel that came through. We had a site this year where I'm like, the location of the plot in relativeness to the elevation of the road caused a lot of wind to come down off that hill. And so that edge got a lot more wind and had wind damage that the rest of the field didn't. So getting throwing things out like that. Um, 
but hopefully combined with my notes that I take over the summer, I can either explain away the, the issue or use that to understand, well, it, it fits in this spot because this was a, a tough acre. It's, um, it's soil's not the best soil or it's dry or whatever and try to figure out how did it do throughout the course of the year. Yeah. Cool. So, no, that's good. And did I answer all your questions? You, you, did, <laughs> you tried because that's going to, it's going to. I'm going to funnel into the next one I'm going okay. to ask you. So whenever I pop open a, a seed book, whether it whether it's yours for more corn or, or whether it's an ASGRO or what decal book, whatever, I, I always see um, numerical values in there. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got everything rated 1 to 10. Where in the world? I mean, the, the, the hybrid doesn't rate itself, obviously. No. So explain to me how, how we come up with those numbers and kind of yeah. what, they, what they typically mean. So for our stuff, that's going to be a combination of information we get from the breeders and what I see in the field. So I just mentioned I'm out looking at 14 plots as much as I can during the summer. Try to visit each plot four to five times um, from planting or from emergence to basically harvest, taking notes on anything from emergence, vigor, um, height, ear height, diseases, um, what else do I, stay green, how, how strong the stalks are, how supportive are the root system, all of those sorts of things. Um, so then I take that info, I rate them while I'm out in the field one to nine. Um, ours is one to nine. DeKalb Asgro is going to be one to nine. The difference is uh, which end of the spectrum yeah. is good. That's so always, that's always one to. Yeah. For more corn and more soy, we're one to nine, where nine is the best. DeKalb Asgro is going to be one to yep. nine, where one is the best. Oh. Um, you know, nice can't, can't think any, <laughs> keep anything too consistent. Yeah. yeah. Um, other companies are going to do different systems. They might use a one to five scale, they might use. Um, how how much of the circle is shaded in, or symbols, or, or whatever. Warning, accept, acceptable, cautious. Yes, yes, some yes. Of these new, <laughs> some of these new things that they're using. Yeah, and it by just using red, green, and yellow colors. Yeah, and for me, it it just makes it harder for a farmer to consistently look from one company to the other to figure out what is good. Yeah, I agree. That's um, that was another point, kind of, of my question. That's why I mentioned the. And I'm glad you brought up the difference in. And numbering systems too because it's just it's, super confusing you can't like grab one thing and grab another thing and start nope. looking through and try to make heads or tails of it no and the other thing is every few years every 10 or 15 years they they will change their entire scale yeah. <laughs> so yeah. then you have to start back over yeah. at zero of what does this mean yeah um so for us i get breeder information and they have a number system and then I'm out taking notes and I'm developing number systems. So um, the Albany plot, I might give emergence, you know, this one has an emergence of a seven. Well, I have a scale of what does the number system mean for emergence? What does it mean for the root system? What does it mean for intactness later in the season? Um, I. Then with our statistics program, I can run it for all of our plots combined or in our plots individually and kind of package that into our number system. I then look at, well, what did my numbers say throughout the summer and what does the breeding program say the numbers should be? If they're the same, I use the same. If they're slightly different, I will weigh 
um, well, they had more years, but mine is more local experience and, and try to come to a balance of what the okay. number should be. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, do you ever, do you ever have one that is, is super weird like that? Like maybe they pitch it to you as like this crazy high yielding thing that stands oh, up yeah. and then we get it and it yields nothing yes. and fall falls over the first time yes. the wind blows. That actually happens. Yeah. And typically, um, our genetic providers are, are pretty good. They know our conditions. Um, one or two of them actually lives in Missouri, so they know what we're expecting, what we're wanting. And I send a request over um, October timeframe of I want, you know, 107 day that's going to do X, Y, and Z. I want 112 day that, that does this different set of X, Y, and Z. So they're bringing me fairly specific, but then also some broad products. Sometimes you get it here though, and it does fall flat on its face. Um, again, I have no idea where their plots are. Yeah. Some of them don't even have many plots in Missouri, so it's just shooting in the dark of, yeah, yeah. of does this one fit at all? When that's the case, um, those plot or products don't tend to do quite as well. Um, Sometimes something will completely surprise you and, and, you know, they thought it only looked so-so, but here, try this. Um, typically, the products we move forward with are, are the ones they're probably a little more confident in. The problem is with three companies, they don't know what each other has. And so they might be really confident in 112 day. Well, I've already got 112 day and company two over here brought me 112 day. So whose 112 day is, is the yeah. best? Yeah, supply and demand at that point. <laughs> right. Well, and, and looking at moving away from products we have in our portfolio, it has to be worth it to move it away. If I'm only beating my current yield or product, of, the yield of my current product by a bushel or two, that's not enough gain for me to stop producing that product, have three to five years of winding down that product's um, inventory, and ramping up a whole new product that people have to take to, they have to find where it fits best. One or two bushels is not enough to make that worth it. Yeah, so no, that makes a lot of sense. Typically, we only move forward with something that's five plus bushels, and even yeah. then, it's like a well, that was one year data. How how confident are we that's going to happen again, the next thing. year? Right. Now you mentioned that you know, like in October, you will put in a request to kind of some things that you're looking for and stuff mm -hmm. like that. How much influence do you have when you're putting that in to say, hey, I kind of want to look at some new things? You know, maybe we just talk about the insect, insect, insect traits, the tra insect trait packages that uh -huh. we have. You know, you know, I know a lot of our lines that we're running are VT Double Pro, Double Pro. We have some smart stacks, but you know, mm -hmm. how much influence do you have on that, and how does that kind of play when we're looking into new hybrids adding? Yeah. Okay, so. We have part of our trade territory that's going to be interested in smart stacks, but smart stacks is going to cost more, mm -hmm. cost the farmer more. Yep. That sort of dwindles how much of our trade territory is willing to plant it. So we typically have one, maybe two smart stacks options. When I go to my genetic suppliers, they know that we don't have a ton of territory or a ton of um, unit need, how many bags we're going to sell enough to justify very many smart stacks products so any given hybrid might come in one trait option or it might come in three trait options 
So from the Bayer side of things, you have SmartStacks, VT Double Pro, Tricepta. Um, on the Syngenta side, you have a whole gamut of a numbering system, <laughs> um, but you have the AgriSure Duracade and then what it includes. You have the AgriSure Viptera and all the things it can, yep. in, its packages can include. You have just AgriSure without Viptera and what it can include. Um, a lot of what we're going to get is stuff from one of those companies, so that's why you're going to see most of our stuff is going to say one of those traits, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so when I go in, they know I don't want a ton of smart stacks. Well, this one is only going to come in the smart stacks option because the VT Double Pro failed in in t background testing. So okay, I might try the smart stacks and see is it really if it's kind of in the middle of our maturity group. Well, maybe it'll cover everywhere that wants it, but maybe not. Um, sometimes they'll bring out one trait first, knowing that the second year another trait is going to be available. So I might try, if SmartStacks is out first, I might test it, kind of get a feel for the plant. I can see it. I can take notes on it through the summer. If it yields well, I might the next year plant the VT Double Pro. Um, it's fairly commonly known that VT Double Pro has a yield boost of about five bushels per acre. Um, there's, there's always a trade-off when you're adding new things to a plant. So VT Double Pro is, is more or less the middle of the road standard. Uh, SmartStacks is going to be an addition because it's, it's basically all the trait that VT Double Pro is plus some underground protection. Okay. Then you've got Triceptas on the other end. It's, it doesn't have the underground, but it has additional above ground protection. Well, all of that is gonna come at a cost. Sometimes you have very little cost. Um, so far from what I've seen, there's not really a lot of yield drag with the Tricepta, but the SmartStacks there, there is. And that's part of why it's hard to justify bringing out a SmartStacks for our trade territory that doesn't need that technology quite as much, plus you're gonna have a slightly lower yield. Is it something they can get by with, with seed treatment, with chemicals, whatever, to make it more worth? To, to fix their situation. Gotcha, yeah. Um, so I go into those those meetings saying, or them knowing, I don't want a lot of SmartStacks options. You can bring me one or two and we'll try it. Um, I think the industry is going to move to the Tricepta or AgriSure Viptera 3330, 3220 route fairly quickly. Um, so, and they know that. And so I say, basically bring me anything Tricepta you have 105 day to 120 day. So it takes them a couple years, well, probably more than a couple years, honestly, I've never asked that question, to get a trait into a given hybrid. And so then they, you know, it takes a while, even though Tricepta, Agrisherviptera has been out for a few years, it takes a while to get that out to breeding programs and then to us. So Right. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that. I mean, early on, you said, you know, you talked about in the production side how, you know, taking the parental lines usually can take anywhere from seven to eight years. Well, that's by going that, taking the parental lines and then coming up with a hybrid variety that we're seeing in our fields, that's also including starting to move in all the different traits and stuff. So, Correct. So, when, you know, when we think about these new traits that we're seeing, you know, even when we think about enlist corn that has, that is coming out and has came out, that's 
that trait has been taking a long time to get pushed yes. through. So they've been well, and that's not years. even considering that there's the science side of getting it into like inserting the gene, yep. making sure it doesn't have all these negative penalties when you're producing the corn. But then you also have to get things like that through the government. Um, not only our government, but all the governments in the world, (laughs) wherever we're going to sell corn to, export corn to, they have to approve those. A lot of times when we're looking at new traits, it's typically other countries that are holding up that process. Um, Man, you got to have it ready to go too. Once you get approval, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to get approval. Yeah, we saw that with soybeans this year, right? Yeah. So. With Extendflex. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden. It's it's a lot of balancing act when they bring out new traits like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, speaking of, of traits and, and new traits, looking forward, what what do you see in the next four to five years out there as far as traits or herbicide resistance stuff in line or anything like that that, that kind of pops out that a direction that we're moving? Um, I think we will stick with the VT Double Pro for, for a while. Um, so, for corn, it's all based on the BT trait. Mm-hmm. Um, VT Double Pro is a, a BT trait that is a combination of, I believe, three BT traits. It's been around for a little while. Um, as with everything like this, and um, soybeans is no different on the herbicide side, you start seeing resistance. Uh, I think that's starting to be seen with VT Double Pro, and that's why you're starting to see the Tricepta, the Agrostrovipterra 3330, 3220. 3110. Um, you could, just for, for <laughs> reference, you could say whatever number you wanted there. And I okay, that's there. fine. Well, uh, <laughs> on, so Tricepta <laughs> is actually a combination of the VT Double Pro trait and the Agrisure trait. So Bayer owns the VT Double Pro, Syngenta owns the Viptera trait. Okay. And so because they combined them, they both have access to them. But of course, they couldn't call them the same thing. So on the Bayer side, it's Tricepta. On the Syngenta side, it's Agrisure Viptera 3330. And then if you pair the um, Viptera trait with not VT Double Pro, it's one of the other two numbers. <laughs> oh, wow. It, it's, nice. it's paired with a different VT trait. So th- that's why I keep listing them all off. And like, <laughs> did I get them all? I think, yeah. I, think I got them all. Um, but yeah, there's no consistency from one company to the other that's on handy. what they call them. Yeah. So, Yes, yeah. it's, it's a little bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think moving forward, that one has a lot of potential. Um, having seen it in the field, it, it adds a lot to the earworm resistance. Um, it's, it's basically how much does a, a wor- an earworm need to eat before it kills it. Well, with the older BT traits... They had to ingest a, a decent amount, enough that even though you had that protection, you were seeing damage on your ears. With the Tricepta Agrisurviptera trait packages, um, it's a lot, a lot less. So you're seeing one or two, maybe three kernels damaged, and that that insect is dead. Now the tricky part is going to be not overusing that and building up that resistance in the insects too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of time and money in developing these traits. And so when we create resistance too quickly, um, you, you've wasted 
million billions of dollars <laughs> in in development. Sure. Um, so I think because of that, you will see more than one trait going at all times. And because let's face it, the newer the trait, the more expensive it's going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tricepta adds adds money to the farmer's yeah. cost, even though they're they might be getting a higher yield because less of their ear is damaged, it still is more money on the front side. Sure. The tricky player coming in, and we'll see how this plays out, is the EPA is potentially looking at changing some of the corn requirements. That's gonna include how much refuge is required. So refuge, whether it's in the bag or structured refuge, is all geared towards preventing that resistance. Right. Um, in, they saw it in soybeans, Roundup Ready came out and every farmer planted it and abused it mm-hmm. and you saw resistant weeds come up very quickly. We don't want that with these really <laughs> expensive trait technologies. Yeah. Um, so the EPA mandates, you know, if you're not in cotton territory, you can have 5% refuge in a bag. Um, if you're in cotton territory, it's supposed to be 20% structured refuge. So the EPA is looking at, is this, an, is this enough mm-hmm. to keep us from quickly going through traits and, and wasting them? And so they're looking at, do we shift up that refuge requirement to, to be more? Um, do we require more BT traits in a trait package? So VT Double Pro has two, B, two BT traits built into it. Um, the original BT traits are all going to be singular trait packages. Tricepta, Agrostrovipterra are three trait packages together. Is, is two enough or do we have to require three and then go from there? So then if they start requiring three, and there would always be a phase in time, most of our old traits are out the window or else they have to add something to them. Right. Uh, so we'll see. There, there's other components of that EPA. Right now, I think it's just a suggestion. I don't know if the comment period is closed or not. Um, but looking at, you know, is are we protecting our assets here, basically? Right. A lot of time and money is spent on this. Right, and just to clarify for folks that may not know, when you when you say plant and refuge, you're, you're planting a, a kernel that's susceptible, essentially, Correct. right? To, yes. To the insect. Yep. So you, you may has, right. You may see insect damage in the field, mm-hmm. but that's typically the, the Ho- refuge. Hopefully, plants. it's it's eating on the refuge. Right. Um, basically, you will get some yield out of that refuge, but it's never going to be what your your traded package is. Right. Um, all in the hopes that if there are insects in your area, they're eating those plants, or yeah, eating those plants, and then um, not creating resistant insects that can right eat the good stuff yeah 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 we don't want ones that eat the good stuff just a couple more like very off the wall questions you can um just blame it on me being the conservation guy and (laughs) um but i do appreciate the shout out for uh for no-till planting earlier so um the emergence is a big deal to me uh, one thing that, that hits the news every once in a while that you hear about, and maybe maybe you know something, um, but short corn that okay. everybody is talking about. Yes. Um, is that actually something that's realistic yes. in the future? It is not far off. So I have seen it in south Min- southern edge of Minnesota. Went to a training up there. 
Um, you are looking at corn that's seven feet tall, maybe. Um, the whole goal of short corn is to make it only grow so tall that a spray rig can get over it easily. Um, so I don't know how tall a spray rig is, <laughs> the bottom of a spray rig. Um, but the goal is, you know, we lose a lot in the fall to disease, to fun fungi, to not being able to spray more insecticide, um, sometimes to weeds by not being able to spray more herbicide. You can do some with a, a crop duster, but mm -hmm. that comes with a whole different set of, oh, yeah. of issues. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys already own a spray rig or they can have a, a company like MFA come out and spray for them. Uh, so then it, it's fitting the, the corn to the equipment we have rather than changing the, the equipment to fit our corn because okay. corn can range anywhere from eight feet tall to 12 feet tall. I mean, sure. I've, I've seen corn Some get 15, 15, 15 feet tall. Uh, yeah, those aren't usually <laughs> preferred around here. Yeah. Um, but then if you're always changing your equipment to fit that, that's really difficult to do. And it, it goes in phases. You know, as you have parental lines that are taller or shorter, you might have most of your products be in the 8 to 10 foot range. Or there's some hot, you know, parental lines that are 10 to 12 foot range. You don't know what you're getting um, until you plant it. So the goal is make corn stop growing at about that seven, eight foot range so that your sprayer can go right over it all season long, or at least most of the season okay. further into it. Cool. That's interesting, um, especially... And I would, I would guess it's five years or less off. Really? Because, hmm. yeah, sometimes you, you hear about things, ag news or wherever, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you never really know if it's some somebody's pipe dream or if it's something that's actually... <laughs> Started as somebody's pipe dream. Yeah, they all do, I suppose. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that kind of leads me to my next question. Nitrogen fixation. Is that something that we see at some point? I think it's potential in the future. Nitrogen fixation for a, a crop like corn is very difficult. Um, it obviously is not naturally a nitrogen fixer. Right. It's, it's yeah, not sure. soybeans. It's not a legume that's going to um, already have that symbiotic relationship. I know there are a lot of companies looking at that, and, and not even just the um, microbial route. There are other things they're looking at. Can we change the plant enough to where it can do it on its own right. somehow? Yeah. I mean, these companies are spending a lot of money trying to, to figure those things out. Anywhere from small startup companies looking at this to, I'm sure, Bayer, yeah. Syngenta, I'm sure they're all looking at it. Um, that would be, that would probably revolutionize the corn industry more than anything ever has. Maybe, uh, maybe breeding, like yeah. breeding programs, probably yeah. the first revolution in the twenties and thirties up, right. up to now, obviously it's a lot more. Um, but that would, that would far surpass and change the dynamics of a lot of different things. I mean, you would turn the fertilizer industry on its head. Sure. Um, yeah. But I think balancing, you know, a farmer's needs, what he can afford, but also environmental needs. Yeah. Um, I think that's a lot harder to do than, than like short corn. Um, I don't think we're going to see it near 
anywhere in the real near future. But I, I think with all the effort put into it, I think it will Somebody's going to figure it out yep. eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, and our, our breeding program, or not our breeding, our genetics programs are, are advancing so much with, with CRISPR technology that makes all of this faster and more precise and more exact. Um, they can do a lot of things they didn't used to be able to do, even, yeah. even five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you mentioned the global production thing too, you know, where you're doubling generations by moving that stuff around and all stuff that, you know, in the last, the last couple decades has been reasonable. But prior to that, it was just not even thought of. No. You know? So. No, and even now, I mean, just just the seed laws and the transportation needs necessary to get stuff from uh, southern hemisphere production to the U.S. is tricky. You have multiple countries that you are making sure you're fitting their laws, um, making sure your timeline fits in. Because even though it takes three, four months to produce corn. You should be able to do that twice in a year, right? But then you have to think, well, how is that being shipped? Um, what government agencies have to approve that? And, and a lot of seed is a very protected um, commodity when it's shipped. There are, every com- country is going to have seed laws, so you have to yeah. make sure you, you meet all of their qualifications. Um, and then on the other end, is the other country willing to receive it? You know, what, how long does it have to sit in customs to make sure it doesn't have anything weird in it? Or, like, there's just a lot that goes into that. that sure, yeah. Anytime you're crossing with, the border with, yeah. with stuff. I mean, even states sometimes it's tricky. Yeah. Can you, yeah. like, countries is, is yeah. a lot. And then you have to factor in what type of transportation is going to get. Who knows how much seed from South America to North America. Is that doable on a plane? Do we have to use a ship? Is there... I guess there's not really another option there. Yeah. <laughs> Teleportation doesn't yeah. exist yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're going to talk hypotheticals, yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's interesting. Well, did we miss anything? Is there anything that, that you're like, oh, man, these guys are going to ask me about this? I and really didn't did. know where this was going to go, so no. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for, yeah, for you, joining man. us today. I, I, I hope, I know, actually, not just I hope, I know you've passed across good information for for anybody that that's running in the ag industry that you know we deal with this stuff all the time and sometimes we we overlook all the work that goes into the background of of stuff that comes out and what works and what doesn't work and so i appreciate you bringing some light or shedding some light on that today and um lots of good information and uh you did you did good enough we'll probably have you back so (laughs) okay thanks thanks for listening to made for agriculture Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.